Hello and welcome to the Legacy of Liberation podcast, brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We care for the graves and memorials of 1.7 million men and women of the Commonwealth forces who died during the First and Second World Wars. We work in 23,000 different places in over 150 countries and territories all around the world. To mark the 75th anniversaries of some of the defining moments of the Second World War, this is a six-part series exploring the cemeteries and memorials from that conflict and what they mean to us today. My name is Glyn Pressor, and I'm a historian of the First and Second World Wars. And I'm Lisa Kellett. I specialise in the interpretation of heritage sites, helping to explain their significance to modern audiences. Now, to find out more about the podcast, you can visit our website, which is cwgc.org. Make sure you get in touch to let us know what you think of the podcast and to share your experiences with us. This first episode focuses on one of the most celebrated stories of the Second World War, The Great Escape. The heart of Poland and the city of Poznan are the graves of 48 men who lost their lives after escaping from a German prisoner of war camp in March 1944. It was one of the most celebrated escape attempts of the entire Second World War. Around 200 men were involved, 76 of them managed to escape through a tunnel from Stalag Luft III. Most of them, though, were captured soon afterwards by German forces and 50 of the escapers were executed. The infamous incident was immortalised in a book and then a film called The Great Escape, which came out in 1963. Lucy, when did you last see The Great Escape? Oh, years ago now, but obviously all the iconic moments remain fresh in my memories. Steve McQueen on his motorbike and the German officer wishing them good luck and those terrible words, thank you that heralded the downfall of all the escapees. Um, but I think the, the character that really stuck in my head, and I forget his name, was the forger who uh, goes blind and he says, but I can see, I can see perfectly. And I always found that a really heart-rending moment. Give up your hopeless attempts to escape. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig. Yeah, each of those characters have their own individual skill set. There are kind of composites of all the real life characters to differentiate them. I mean, it feels like anyone who was anyone in Hollywood at that time had a role in that movie. You know, Steve McQueen, Richard Attenborough, um, everyone. Um, but did you watch war movies growing up? Was that something that you, you did as a family? Oh, definitely. Yeah, Sunday afternoons, sitting around, essential family bonding time, lots of debates about which is our favourite. <laughs> so what was your what was your personal favourite? Well, my choice is slightly left field, perhaps. It was a wartime propaganda film, British film, called Went the Day Well. And that's about uh, Germans invading a small kind of English village under the guise of the, the home guard and uh, then being gradually sort of found out by Thora Heard, of all people, I think went on to um, be famous in Coronation Street. And, uh, and her fellow villagers kind of gradually working out what had, how they'd been infiltrated, if you like. What I find really interesting about that film is uh, that at the end it has this sequence, a kind of retrospective, um, where uh, a guy talks to the camera and says, oh, of course, we all know how Hitler's planned invasion ended up and uh, it, he was defeated in the end. And of course, this was made in about 1940 three four something like that uh so it's interesting looking back um at that it's amazing to think uh, these movies being made during the war i mean the, the british government 
um, acted as a patron, effectively, for, for the production of war movies. People like Alexander Corder, um, they paid for them partly due to propaganda, entertainment, to convince the Americans that Britain was still fighting on. Britain can take it, was the great line. Um, and some really kind of challenging movies made during that time. And artistically, I think many of them still really hold up today. My, I've got to say my personal favourite has to be the Powell and Pressburger movies. So the life and death of Colonel Blimp, you know, the old duffer, war begins at midnight, you know, the, the old guard moving on and his friendship with a German officer um, all the way back to the First World War. And of course, A Matter of Life and Death. It's got to be one of the best British movies ever made. Um, David Niven, the RAF pilot, who dies and he's in a kind of heavenly court looking back over his life and the people he's known. So I think it's it's really interesting to look back at wartime movies and compare them to to all the ones that came later in the 50s and 60s. And of course, they're still churning this stuff out today. Yeah, well, last year's big blockbuster was Dunkirk, wasn't it? I personally I, um, kind of didn't like the film all that much or uh, its take on the events didn't appeal to me. I think it was something to do with um, perhaps the music and um, that sense of creating kind of art house film or art kind of abstract sort of atmosphere to it that seemed to be more about an aesthetic effect than uh, telling a historical narrative. It's not like you would watch that to really learn about the events of Dunkirk, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think as a historian, that's that's definitely true. You know, I, I, I like Christopher Nolan movies. I thought that some of the sequences were amazing. The Spitfire uh, sequences, technologically, it was amazing. Gave you a real feel for what it must have been like to be there as a, as a Spitfire pilot. But yeah, I don't think that it was particularly interested in, in recreating the reality of it. In many ways, the 1958 movie with John Mills is a much better depiction of of uh, the reality of Dunkirk and helps you understand what was going on better. And yeah, I think that's always the challenge for us. What's the reality and how far is that, you know, um, compromised by artistic decisions? And I think The Great Escape is a prime example of that. So what better place to learn more about the reality of what happened on the 24th of March 1944 and the experiences of the people who actually took part and lost their lives than to go and visit the graves in Poland? So this is the cemetery. It's a lot smaller perhaps than I thought. The trees are bare at this time of year, but I imagine with the leaves it would be much feel much more enclosed. Yeah, like really enveloping and kind of um yeah, enclosing. I'm struck by the, the landscaping. Very unusual. Yeah, very uneven ground and the sloping upwards at the far end. So we've just arrived at the cemetery and it seems like a hive of activity. The contractors are here. There's quite a few gardeners around. About eight, something like that. Yeah, busy planting. You can see that after the winter there's uh, a lot of work going on here. And I think they're just about to start up the lawnmower. There we go, right on cue. <laughs> on cue yeah. It's nice to see it being tended. I don't know if I expected something very isolated um, and kind of almost as though it hadn't been visited in years, something like that. I kind of had a sense of it being um, very remote. Yeah, I mean, talking to the contractor as well, I mean, he was saying he'd worked here for 10 years. His mm. firm looks after the, the graves and lots of grand gardens of big houses. My name is Wiesław Tokarski. What does it mean to you to work and look and care for these graves? When I, I'm here, I'm looking and uh, many young people here that the free is too young it's i think it's too young 
So it's really interesting looking at the uh, the visitors book here. We've got a mixture of um, people from all different parts of the world. Uh, so the last visitor was a couple of days ago from uh, Wakefield in England. We've got someone here from the USA. Um, got Polish name. Um, yeah, lots of Polish names mm. clearly well visited by Poles as well as people from mm. all over the world, really. Yeah, Perth, Amazing. Western Australia. Well, this is the First World War plot. There were actually graves here after the end of the First World War, prisoners of war who, who died in captivity after the Great War. Again, you can see the, the dates on these headstones, November 1918, right near the end of the, of the fighting in the First World War. And then more graves were brought here after the end of the Second World War. In Poland, like in Germany, they had uh, several large cemeteries where graves were brought from all over um, what would have been enemy territory, of course, at the time that, that these men died. So we're just walking past the uh, Cross of Sacrifice now into the Second World War section. You can see here that uh, all the graves are of RAF aircrew. And look at the sunlight coming through, mm. my goodness, the evening sunshine picking out the gravestones. It's really beautiful. The Great Escape on the night of the 24th of March 1944 was the single biggest breakout from a German prisoner of war camp in the entire war. Hitler, famously enraged by this, wanted everyone to be killed who'd, who'd taken part, and also the camp commandant, the, the architect, everyone who was on duty. Now, in the end, of course, 50 of the escapees were, were killed in, in the most brutal fashion, and I think that's probably why it still retains such a, a profound legacy today. Look, here's Roger Bushell, squadron oh, leader Roger Bushell. Okay, so this is um, Big X, right? The, the mastermind of the whole operation. Richard Attenborough's character mm. in the film. And he was only 33. Mm. I don't think I would have appreciated that from the film. Mm. You sort of think of him as this older authority figure. and You're reminded again of just how young these people were. Oh, look at the inscription here. A leader of men. He achieved much, mm. loved England and served her to the end. It's incredibly poignant to see the grave of somebody who has almost got a kind of legendary status. Mm. So such a uh, such a key character in, in The Great Escape, such a memorable figure from the movie. I think the other thing you see around all this sweep of graves here are the just the variety of the symbols. We can see the springbok from South Africa, mm. uh, the fern of New Zealand here, uh, the Australian Air Force symbol, and of course many with per ardua ad astra, the, the RAF motto, through adversity to the stars. This is Flight Lieutenant Leslie Ball, the first out of the tunnel on the night of the 24th of, of March. And just next to him, squadron leader Ian Cross. Famously, he was in charge of the, the team, the penguin team, they were called, because they, they walked along shaking the soil out of their trousers to disguise all the digging. Uh, and then you look at his age, 25. Uh, it, it's remarkable and it's really poignant, actually. It's interesting thinking about that, that um, sort of think about the people's experience of war um, as fighting together um, those the high stakes the life and death um, experience of fighting and dying together but interestingly for prisoners of war of course they're living together too um, often uh, in scenarios of extreme boredom actually um, and whiling away their days and that's their experience of the war just whiling it away um, and that kind of adds a a heightened poignancy, doesn't it, to, to this thinking about how they would have known each other perhaps in a, a different way and almost to a greater extent than people uh, who had a more conventional experience mm. of war, if you like. 
I think certainly in terms of the RAF, you know, we think of it as a very British organisation, but all you have to do is look at these headstones here. They're the same shape as any other RAF headstone. They have the same symbol, mm. but underneath the name, you can see the place of origin. We've mm. got of Lithuania, yeah. of Belgium, of France. We had of Norway of there. Of Norway, yeah. I mean, and of South Africa, South of course, with, with Roger mm. Bushell. I mean, just a real reminder of, of the number of different people from, from all over Europe and all over the world who took part. Before we left for Poland, I went to speak to Guy Walters, a writer and historian and author of The Real Great Escape, to find out more about what actually happened and the truth behind the legend. I think the movie's great fun. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I'm a boy too. I like, the, I like films like this. I like Where Eagles Dare. I like The Great Escape. But you can't take it too seriously. Um, let's just nail the uh, motorbike scene. It didn't happen. There were no Americans on The Great Escape. Um, we know how uh, Hollywood distorts uh, historical fact in movies. And this is a big one. There were no Americans. Now, there were Americans, you know, in the kind of early days of planning escapes in Stalag Luft III, but they all got separated from the Brits and other allies. So, you know, Steve McQueen, it's great fun, but no one even escaped on a bicycle, as far as I'm aware, because actually the penalty for taking a bicycle would have been death. So, you know, imagine stealing a motorbike. Uh, not a hope, not a hope. Um, there are lots of other parts of the film that do severely distort things. I think that the one thing that is very obvious is the weather. Um, you know, the weather is gloriously sunny and actually in reality, the Great Escape was really cold. Uh, it was just below freezing. Uh, there was snow on the ground. Um, it really was a terrible time of year, um, you know, that March 44. So, you know, that's another thing that doesn't really come across. And I think another thing that distorts uh, quite heavily in the film is the fact that it kind of feels a bit like a sort of international boys kind of private school and it all seems rather jolly yet actually if you look at red cross reports from the time uh, and this is before we had a greater understanding of mental health issues um, you can really see there's a lot of reports of, of, of men with severe psychological damage because of being imprisoned. Um, so you've got to remember, you know, The Great Escape is a story of people in a prison. It's not a story of people who were soldiers or airmen anymore. That had gone. They were now prisoners. That's a really interesting thought. Um, that change in, in who these people are, the moment that they're captured. I mean, how far did that happen straight away at the moment of capture? Or was this something that developed over time? I, I think there's an enormous psychological impact the moment you go from being a soldier or an airman or, or in the Navy to suddenly being a prisoner. Uh, and as any interrogator will tell you, that's the time when you try to get information out of someone you've just captured because that they're most bewildered, they're most um, vulnerable, you know, they're, they're tired, they've seen their friends shot or whatever. Um, you've got to remember that all the people in Stalag Love 3 were airmen mm. and they had literally, you know, taken off from a base in Kent um, they'd been shot down four or five hours later, and within about 48 hours, they were suddenly behind barbed wire in Silesia, thousands of miles from home. The prison camp today is a very different scene, but there are some memorials to um, the men who were killed in this incident and all of those who, who took part there. What's it like today? Stalag Luthery today is a very boring wood in a very boring part of Poland. It's a lot of trees, it's very flat, um, and it's easy to see why you'd get very claustrophobic there. There are bits of rubble left behind. Um, there's, a couple, there's a reconstructed guard tower, um, but near the camp um, is, is a very moving memorial to the 50 who were shot 
built by uh, the prisoners during the war. And that memorial has three scrolls with the 50 names on, and those three scrolls represent the three tunnels that were built for the Great Escape, Tom, Dick and Harry. Now, I know it's not a Commonwealth war grave, um, but another interesting thing about it is that actually the money to pay for that uh, monument was provided by the German commandant, a man called von Lindeiner, who was absolutely apoplectic about what the Nazis had done to, to his boys, effectively, as he saw it. Um, he thought the Great Escape was a silly idea, but no one, no one deserves to die for trying to escape from a POW camp. And that's a very moving memorial, so I'd urge anybody to see that. Our time's nearly up in the, uh, the cemetery here. What did you make of it, Glenn? Well, I'm so pleased that we, we bumped into the the gardeners. Um, really, really touching to speak to, to Polish people who were looking after these graves and, and to spend a bit of time talking to them about what it means to them. Uh, and also to see the Polish headstones. Uh, it's a real reminder of the, the, the role that, that Polish people played in the Allied war effort uh, and that long history of this country in, in both world wars. Uh, and so to see those headstones here um, as part of that, that collective story, that international story of the Great Escape, I think was a, a really important reminder of that. How about you? Yeah, I think making the journey all the way here today and being here now, it still feels sort of surreal. And it just makes me think about how that would have felt for families who had loved ones buried uh, behind enemy lines, effectively, who never um, were liberated or saw their home again. And what they would have made of that um, if they would ever have been able to visit their loved ones after the war. After the break, we'll talk to Victor Gregg about his experience as a POW, and we'll visit the CWGC's archive to find out about our staff who were captured during the war. What does it take to ensure those who died in the two world wars will never be forgotten? This June, discover the answer at the CWGC Experience, a unique new visitor attraction that will shine a light on the work of the remarkable organisation at the heart of remembrance of the war dead, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. The trip to the battlefields of the Western Front is not complete without a visit to the CWGC Experience. Welcome back to the Legacy of Liberation podcast. After visiting the graves of the great escapers in Poznan, we wanted to know more about what it was like for prisoners of war in Germany. So I went to speak to Victor Gregg, veteran of the conflict, who had first-hand experience of what life was like in prison camps in Germany. Well, first of all, uh, first of all, they put you on a train, and then they take you to what they call a transit camp. Well, this transit camp was at Limburg, where they make the cheese. Stuck the whole heaven. It really did. And then from there, you, you sort you out, and we, I went to 4B, which is enormous. Enormous. Thousands of them there. I've been there since Dunkirk, some of them. And the first thing you get a lecture from some sergeant, because the, the, the British NCOs are running the place. See, uh, if you're going to try and get away, you've got to tell us first. Yeah, like hell, they the last people you'd tell. So, yeah, I stood that for about three weeks, and then they come round and asked if I volunteered for work camps. So I volunteered for the work camp. And that's how I got down near Dresden. And I'm in this little work camp, about 60 or 80 blokes. 
sent out to do cleaning the streets, stuff like that, anything. And you were at Dresden when the famous bombing took place in February 1945? Well, I, I, I landed up in Dresden because uh, I tried to eat, twice I tried to get away, get away, because Czechoslovakia was only 40 miles away, 60 miles, something like that. So we thought we might be able to do it. But mind you, the snow was about, what, three foot deep uh, down there in Saxony in February. We got captured twice. We, so the old felt waver who was in charge, uh, he was ex-Navy. He, he was all right, he was a decent bloke. But he said, I've got a punisher. I was 10 that night. The uh, mosquitoes come over and that's when it all started. 30 minutes into the road and then this bomb landed outside, blew all the wall in, uh, blew me right over the other side of the of this place. It, it, it was awful. Uh, and of course that's the first time that I'd ever, I'd ever witnessed uh, women and children in the middle of a battle. And to go back to the the prisoner experience and the, the prisoners that you spent time with, did you feel any differently about the ones who had been there since 1940 to the ones who were trying I to get out as I, soon as I, they could? Yeah, well, I, I couldn't blame them for being there from 1940, but I, I, I did... Uh, so I sat there and just waited for a lot of lads to come and uh, sacrifice, get themselves dead in order to free them. I thought, yeah, I thought, all, yeah, well, if that's the British Army, I don't think much of it because it was thousands of these sort of blokes there. You'd have thought that, I, I know they were, but all they had to do was to add work in a work camp. That's all they had to do. They'd shoot you at the drop of a pin. But uh, at least there wasn't barbed wire or the barbed wire around. But you got out. You got out. You could uh, you could do a dive if you wanted to. You might not get anywhere, but at least you try. They just uh, they just conformed. They just a lot of them just conformed. And of course, those fifty airmen who broke out, they all got shot, didn't they? I bet you. How can you criticise people when you, when they're not there to answer your boat? But that was the thing I got. It wasn't just servicemen who ended up as prisoners. We heard that there were some surprising stories hidden in the CWGC's archives. So I went to meet archivist Andrew Featherstone to find out more. OK, so we're just going to go into the archive store now. Yeah, so this is really the history of the, of the commission. So um, details about... How it, how it was uh, created, who were the main people who were involved in setting up the commission, and then all information about its policy, why does it do the things it, it does, uh, and where does it do them. So we've got uh, files for every cemetery site around the world where there's a war grave or memorial. There'll be a paper file in here with archives. Lots of our staff were evacuated during the war. Uh, in some cases, staff remained and were able to maintain those cemetery sites, but there was obviously risks in doing that. Uh, there wasn't a deliberate policy by uh, any of the aggress- uh, any of the sort of opposing nations to damage cemeteries, but some inevitably did uh, suffer some damage during the conflict. Uh, in, in particular, uh, the site we've already mentioned, Villa Spetsnaz Memorial itself, um, actually was used by the French army as an observation post. Uh, and so, when the Germans invade in 1940, it comes under. Uh, shell fire and mortar fire and it gets, suffers considerable damage. It wasn't a deliberate act of destruction but it was uh, what happens during war unfortunately. 
Um, and yeah, suffered shell damage, mortar damage, and a number of headstones were, were destroyed as well. You mentioned some of our staff being evacuated. What about those who remain behind? Were there many that did stay in enemy territory? Um, so we have records in the archive which suggest that out of 500 or so gardeners who might have been working in France and Belgium, and this, this is a sort of main area that we're talking about in terms of uh, evacuees, uh, around 350, 400 were, were managed managed to be evacuated, but around 100, 150 uh, actually ended up staying behind, uh, ended up being captured and being interned uh, during the war. So they ended up spending most of the war, in effect, prisoners of war in, in France and later on in Germany as well when they were moved. Wow, so do we have sort of detailed, detailed records of those people? Yeah, so we, we've got some really interesting files about the evacuation itself and so what happens to the groups of uh, gardeners and their families who are having to try uh, and escape from uh, France and Belgium as it's being invaded. So in May 1940, it's a very confusing kind of situation and uh, different bodies of men and gardeners, some on bikes, some in lorries, and their families are trying to get away, get to the, the French ports. Uh, we know from one case, uh, and we have a, a written account of it, of one uh, gardener, a, a man called Leopold Shreve, who, who was in a car that was uh, driving along uh, and actually runs into German troops. The Germans are trying to set up a roadblock. The commission car drives through, trying to get uh, past. It comes to another kind of barrier and has to turn around. And as it drives back the other way, past the German troops, they open fire. And uh, Mr. Shreve, who's a passenger in the car, gets hit and, and actually dies. So one of our commission staff, at the moment that um, they're being evacuated, wow. is actually killed. Uh, but that that wasn't typical. So that was, that was a, um, kind of almost an isolated event. It, most of our staff, as I said, were either evacuated all were interned. Um, one interesting case that we've got is a gardener called Robert Armstrong. Now, he uh, was based at Valencian's Cemetery. He was an ex-soldier. He'd fought in the First World War, as most of our gardeners were, were ex-soldiers. Um, he'd fought in the First World War as a member of the Irish Guards. He was a, a sergeant at the time. Uh, and he stays on and develops and lives his life in France and Belgium after the First World War, tending various cemeteries. Uh, by the time the war breaks out, he's in Valenciennes. Um, he's married to, uh, 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 I think it's a Belgian woman. Um, he's got an Irish passport. He's, he's a, considered a neutral, so he's allowed to carry on working there by the German and, and the, the French authorities. Uh, but what subsequently happens, is, um, what we find out later, is that uh, he's implicated somehow in helping... Uh, allied airmen who are shot down to escape so he, he's kind of connected to the, the resistance movement uh, and that's found out by the German authorities uh, and so subsequently he's actually arrested and he's initially uh, sentenced to death but he's commuted to imprisonment so he's in commu uh, commuted to 15 years imprisonment he ends up being interned in a prison of war camp and then it, it gets a bit hazy about what actually happens but there's an implication that he uh, is mistreated in the camp and actually subsequently dies so he dies in 1944 in uh, Sagan camp in Germany uh, and actually if you go to Valencian's cemetery today there's a memorial to him so you know memorial to uh, Robert Armstrong our commissioned gardener and it's been it was created by his friends from the Valencian's towns itself. So we've talked about some of the gardeners and staff who didn't manage to escape. What about those who did manage to make it back home and were effectively liberated? Yeah, so uh, we know that the, of, the, of the of the gardeners who were interned uh, and spent most of the war in prison, well, most of them survived to, to be reunited with their families. Uh, by 1944, a lot of them are based in prison war camps in, in France, so they're actually liberated before the war ends. So they're, they're liberated in September 1944. Um, they're sent on ships, so they get manage to get back through ships leaving French ports, and they either go to Southampton or, or Liverpool. Uh, and what's interesting as well is actually while they're interned, uh, um, 
the commission is able to keep some contact with them. So they make, there's minutes in our files where the staff who are who were able to be evacuated and are working back in England uh, are sending funds and contributions to through the Red Cross to to their colleagues who are in the camps. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. Fascinating to hear those stories from Andrew of Commission staff who were captured during the Second World War and amazing to me to think of Second World War soldiers going and visiting the graves of First World War soldiers, going and visiting in 1939 and 1940 those cemeteries that had been created in France and Belgium to commemorate the First World War while they were fighting the Second World War. Of course we saw those graves together, First and Second World War in Poznan, it's a very moving sight. I think it'll be interesting as the series goes on and we visit more sites and, and learn more about the different anniversaries during this momentous year uh, to think about the differences between First World War cemeteries and Second World War cemeteries, whether they have different uh, kind of atmospheres, uh, different looks even, different design features and different feelings that are evoked um, for us as visitors. Yeah, and the fact that so many people play different roles whether you were captured, whether you escaped, whether you were a soldier, um, whether you died in captivity or you're worthy of remembrance. And that fact that liberation means different things to different people in different places and, of course, has all kinds of different legacies. Next time on the Legacy of Liberation podcast, we'll explore the battles of Kahima and Imphal, discovering the story of an iconic epitaph and looking at how Indians remember the Second World War. This podcast was presented by Lucy Kellett and Glenn Prussell. Our guests were Guy Walters, Victor Gregg and Andrew Featherston. The producer was Jack Sheeran.